Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you haven't heard, there was an election this week. And while some of the dust is still settling, I think it's pretty safe to say that it is clear we are living in a nation divided. Now, not that we didn't already know that, but now we see just how deep that divide really is, as roughly half the country is relieved and the other half is disappointed, to say the least. Now, at Antioch, I know we've got people in our church who voted red, people who voted blue, people who voted third party, and people who couldn't vote for anyone. We're not going to worry about any of that today. I trust that as those whose first allegiance is pledged to Jesus, you voted according to your Christian conscience and convictions. And that's all I ask. So we're going to turn our attention to the question of what it looks like to live as kingdom citizens in a conflicted country. Or another way of putting it is, what does it mean to live as the people of God now, in this moment, in this season? And my conviction continues to be that as we strive to be faithful to Christ and his kingdom, not only are we becoming the people God has created and called us to be, we're also becoming the kind of people the world needs most. So today and next Sunday will be our last two weeks in the First Allegiance series as we seek to discern how God wants to use this moment to turn our hearts towards himself and towards the world that he loves. Today, we're talking about loving our enemies. The commitment we signed way back at the beginning of the election series says it like this. I commit to loving and praying for my so-called political enemies, especially those whom I have the hardest time loving and praying for. This includes a commitment to pray for our government leaders regardless of who wins the election. So what kind of people is Jesus calling his followers to become? What kind of people does the world need most right now? The answer to both questions is the same. People who love their enemies. Now, this command, as you know, comes straight from the red letters in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is giving what you might call his inaugural address as God's elected king of the universe. He's proclaiming to his disciples what it means to live on earth as citizens of heaven, and he's doing that by comparing and contrasting the way of his kingdom and the way of the world. So already in chapter 5, six times Jesus has said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Or in other words, he's saying, if you're going to follow me, you're not going to fit nicely into any of the boxes that the world wants to put you in because my way is all 
altogether different. It's a whole new way of being human. And so he's talked about the value and dignity of every human life. He's talked about a vision for sexual flourishing. He's talked about the empowerment of the oppressed. He's talked about what it looks like to uh, live a life of nonviolent resistance. And now at the end of chapter five, he's talking about how his kind of love is radically different than anything that the world has to offer. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, he says, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus knows that humans are prone to division. We instinctively want to divide the world into our people and other people. Those who are like us and those who are unlike us. Our neighbors and our enemies. And he says that the way of the world is to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. But the way of Jesus is different. It's to love both your neighbor and your enemy. Now, here's what's so interesting about this to me. Jesus never says that we shouldn't have enemies. In fact, it almost seems like he assumes that we will. So the point of this teaching isn't to avoid having enemies. It's about how if we do have enemies, we have to love them. So to me, this kind of messes with my Sunday school idea of Jesus a little bit. But here's why it makes sense. Because Jesus had enemies. He probably had more enemies than anyone else around. Yeah, he had a few faithful followers who loved him, but for the most part, Jesus was not a very well-liked guy in his day. He had all kinds of people who hated him. He was considered a political radical an extremist, like the kind of person that's wrong with the world. I mean, they hated him so much that they killed him. Jesus had enemies. And so when Jesus is giving his inaugural address in this Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking as a man who has enemies, and he assumes that those who would follow after him would have enemies as well. So Jesus never says we shouldn't have enemies. What he says is that we should love our enemies. Which raises some questions then, doesn't it? There's another story where Jesus is talking to this rich young ruler, and he tells the rich young ruler to love his neighbor as himself. And the rich young ruler says, well, who is my neighbor? And when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, we might also want to ask, And who is my enemy? Simply put, your enemies are those who are hardest for you to love. A good way to figure this out is to think about what kind of person you're most afraid of. See, because we know that perfect love casts out fear. So if you want to know who Jesus is calling you to love, then ask, who do I fear? For those of us who are U.S. Americans, 
we've answered that question in different ways at different times in our nation's history. For those of you who were around back starting in the 50s and 60s, who were Americans most afraid of back then? Well, the communists, right? The Red Scare, the Soviet Union, nuclear bombs, all that. And then that kind of died out in the 90s, and then 9-11 happened. And who were Americans afraid of then? We're afraid of Islamic terrorists, Bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, Hamas. For really most of the last 20 years, that's who most white U.S. Americans have considered our enemies at a large scale. But then we fast forward to today, and who are Americans most afraid of now? Yeah, we're still afraid of Islamic terrorists. We're afraid of the rise of China. We're afraid of immigrants. But do you know who I think we're most afraid of? Each other. We're scared of each other. Those on the left are scared of those on the right. Those on the right are scared of those on the left. We don't understand each other. We don't know how to talk to each other. We have a hard time recognizing ourselves in each other. And in many ways, whether you lean progressive or conservative, or even if you think of yourself as moderate or centrist, all of us have come to see those not like us as the problem or as the enemy. I've told you before about the study they did at Stanford. In 1960, parents were asked who they would least want their child to marry. And back then, their answer was someone of a different race or religion. And today, when parents are asked the same question, parents say they would least want their child to marry someone of another political party. We have become our own worst enemies. Now, I know that might sound kind of dramatic, but remember, Jesus doesn't tell us not to have enemies. What he tells us is that when we do have enemies, we have to love them. So next week, we're going to close this series by talking about peacemaking, what it actually looks like to form unlikely friendships, to learn how to make peace with those who are different than us at an interpersonal level. But for today, I simply want to suggest that, yes, the world is on fire right now. Everything's weird. The nation is divided. But what if, as followers of Jesus, we were able to receive this very moment as the perfect opportunity to learn how to love like Christ. Maybe you've never had enemies before, and now you do. Guess what? Jesus wants to disciple you into a whole new understanding of love. If we get to the end of the passage, we find one of the more discouraging and frustrating sounding verses in the entire Bible, Matthew 5:48, where he says, <clears throat> be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And if you're like me, you're like, great, right? Jesus is like, if you want to know how to be a Christian, it's easy. Just be perfect like God is perfect. It's kind of like asking LeBron James, how do you be as good as, at basketball as he is? 
And he says, it's easy. Just be six foot nine like me. And you're like, yeah, I don't think I can do that. Sounds good, but what are we really talking about? So here's the question. Does Jesus actually expect perfection from his followers? This is one of those passages that to really understand what's happening, we need to understand it in context. And the context of this verse is this conversation around the definition and the meaning of love. And again, Jesus is contrasting the world's way of loving with his way of loving. And he's talking about the world's way of loving as one where we love those who are like us. We love those who are easy to love and we love those who love us. And we can infer that the word Jesus would use to describe that kind of love is incomplete or, in other words, imperfect. It's an imperfect love if it's a love that only extends to people like you or people who are easy to love. But then he starts to describe God's way of love, a love that isn't limited to those who are like us or to those who love us back. He's saying God's love is a complete love, a whole love or a perfect love, meaning that it includes everyone, even our enemies. And so Jesus is saying, let go of this world's idea of love. It's incomplete. It's imperfect. And instead, take on God's idea of love, this complete, whole, perfect love. In your love, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what's amazing is that as Jesus calls us, to learn how to practice this kind of love, he first calls us to receive it. This week, Pastor Linda reminded me of the story of Corrie Ten Boom, who, if you don't know, was a Dutch woman during World War II who worked with her family to help Jews escape from the Nazis during the Holocaust. And they had a place in their home, the hiding place, where many, many Jews found safety and refuge and protection. Well, eventually, Corey Ten Boom was caught, and she was arrested and sentenced to time in a concentration camp. In her book, The Hiding Place, she tells the story of her family's efforts and ultimately how she found hope in God while she was imprisoned at the concentration camp. At one point, after she had been released, she's preaching the gospel of Jesus at a church nearby. And in attendance is one of the guards who was there in the concentration camp who had hurt her, who had beat her, who had shamed her. And after the service the guard comes up to speak to her. And let me read to you a couple paragraphs. Here's how she tells the story. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. 
His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a, lo- a love this stranger for this stranger that had almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. So why should we love our enemies? Jesus doesn't promise that loving our enemies is going to, quote-unquote, work. He doesn't promise that by loving my my enemy that I'm going to win them over, that I'm going to produce change, that we're going to be reconciled, or that everything's going to be healed or taken care of. Jesus never promises that loving enemies is going to work. So why does he call us to love our enemies? The answer is that when we love our enemies, we are living in tune with God. When we love our enemies, it reveals what God is like. When he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's saying this is the revelation of the character and the heart of God. Our Heavenly Father is an enemy-loving God. We were once dead in our sin, enemies of God, but in Christ he has come to us, lived among us, become one of us, and died for us. And so in Jesus, we see an enemy-loving God. Bonhoeffer talked about it like this. The Christian must treat his enemy as a brother and repay his hostility with love. His behavior must be determined not by the way others treat him, but by the treatment he himself receives from Jesus. It has only one source, and that is the will of Jesus. And so Antioch, may your heart be filled with the perfect love of God. And may you embrace this moment as the perfect opportunity to learn how to love as he loves. Love you guys.